0: Those books, you know, Amy, what I would say to you is when you are seeking comfort, which is so weird that I'm saying this about murder books, but like when you are just looking for a warm hug in the form of a book, mysteries are like the modern morality play. You know, injustice is done, a rift is um, torn, and then the detective uses logic and care to knit it back together. And of course, not all mysteries work that way. Many are much grittier. Many, you know, have... Uh, unpleasant endings but Louise Penny you know those stories always with heart bring you a sense of calm even in their complexity and I just I just love them well there's our
1: soundbite for the opening of the show (laughs) I mean you you hooked us in I mean who doesn't want that in their life The universe buries strange jewels deep within us all and then stands back to see if we can find them, writes Elizabeth Gilbert in her self-help handbook titled Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. Why am I leading with a quote from Big Magic? Well, it's the book that inspired this week's guests to go after a new creative journey in her 40s. Today, we are discussing how Nina Simon, a former NASA engineer and creative force in the museum world, became a murder mystery writer. If you're new here, welcome. I'm Amy Allen-Clark from MomAdvice.com, and I'm the voice behind the Book Gang podcast. On this podcast, we celebrate under-the-radar books, backlist book selections, and debut novelists. In Nina Simon's debut, Mother-Daughter Murder Night, Lana Rubicon, a successful businesswoman, is stranded far from home in a coastal town with her estranged daughter, Beth, and granddaughter, Jack. Unfortunately, this incredible force of a woman has cancer. And this diagnosis and treatment have been really all-consuming for her. That is, until the discovery of a body by her granddaughter. When Jack becomes the prime suspect in the ensuing murder investigation, Lana finds an unexpected purpose in clearing her granddaughter's name. Determined to protect her family and assert her strength, Lana works to uncover the true culprit. Together, all three generations of women unravel a complex web of lies a sea of racial tensions, and land disputes within their seemingly peaceful community. As their amateur investigation turns dangerous, the Rubicon women must overcome their differences and learn to rely on one another. You do not, though, need to be a murder mystery lover to appreciate how this book came to be. You see, when Nina's mother battled stage 4 cancer in late 2020, it prompted her to leave her CEO position and care for her. Amidst those very real challenges, Nina and her mother found solace in their shared love for murder mysteries, and as they spent endless days in the hospital, they decided to try to write a mystery book of their own to keep them busy. To celebrate this novel and all the other upcoming releases, I have a 2023 Fall Reading Guide to share with you. Unlike the summer reading guide, I personally can't vouch for all of these books because the summer series took every ounce of time I had, but what I can say is that I went through all of the early feedback on every book in this guide to narrow it down to what I anticipate will be some of the best bets for your fall book stack. If you are a patron of the show, I will also drop a printable copy of that in your accounts today. This is an independent podcast that relies upon listeners to fund. I just wanna say I'm grateful to each of our listeners that helps fund our show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have it in your hearts to help me and to keep offering this space to our authors, it is a $5 a month membership to be a show supporter, or you can prepay for 10% savings. And if you are a murder mystery lover, you will love today's bonus. Patrons get an additional spoiler-filled episode with Nina Simon, where we talk through the ending of her book so you can hear exactly why she chose the killer she did for her ending. Head to patreon.com backslash momadvice, or you can check today's show notes to sign up. Now let's meet this month's guests. Nina Simon has donned numerous hats throughout her journey, from being a NASA engineer and slam poet to a mystery game designer, exhibit developer, a museum director, and founder of a global nonprofit. Her career has predominantly unfolded within the realms of museums and cultural centers, earning her recognition as a museum visionary by Smithsonian Magazine due to her community-centered design approach. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Nina lives with her husband and daughter off-grid in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Mother-daughter Murder Night is her debut novel. And as I close out this intro, we would be so grateful if you told a friend about this episode, gave us a like, or left a written review on iTunes. Let's close out the intro with just one more quote from Big Magic, be the weirdo who dares to enjoy. I hope today's conversation ignites your inner weirdo and gives you permission to try something new, even if everyone sees you with their training wheels on. Let's get chatting.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Nina Simon, the author of Mother Daughter Murder Night. Uh, mother Daughter Murder Night is my debut novel. I never expected to be writing fiction. Um, I've spent the last 20 years working in museums and engineering and lots of different spaces. I like to say that at every professional crossroad, I've made the choice most likely to disappoint my mother. So right out of college, I got a great job at NASA, and I quit it to design exhibits for children's museums and later science science and a spy museum. Um, I became a museum director and a nonprofit CEO. And then I threw that away to write novels. And so here I am, and fortunately, um, my mom has come along for the ride um, and been really supportive along the way, but um, it's been a wild ride, and I'm so glad to be here now with you.
1: Well, Nina, you are winning for bus Bio. I do always like to talk about bios, especially if they're eclectic. I want to say what I got sent over to me is that Nina Simon has worn many hats, as you have referred to in your intro, NASA engineer, slam poet game designer, museum director, and global nonprofit founder. I want to tell you the very strange overlap that you and I have. So I recorded our Patreon episode with my co-host, Larry Hoffer, and he is Get Booked with Larry on Instagram, but for many years, he worked at a museum. So I started to talk about your book, and I was saying, you know, Nina Simon, it's her first dip into fiction but you may know her. And I start saying all of these things and he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's in the lobby of the museum that I was working at. So we have this very strange connection and he is so excited to read your book. I want to talk about how you have been doing all of these different kinds of jobs. First of all, it makes me feel a little lazy to hear all the things that you have gone after. And now you're like, yeah, why not? Let's try fiction too.
0: You know, I think some people are lucky enough to find the thing for 30 years or 40 years. I'm the kind of person who... Dives deeply into what I'm passionate about, but I'm not afraid to quit. Also, if I feel like an avenue is taking me somewhere else, I feel like life is too short, at least for me, to only do one thing. And so I feel like I have joyfully transitioned um, and, and even to some extent, stepped away from things I was quite good at and, and kind of felt like that was a good check against the part of. Uh, a person's ego that focuses on others' approval, that I always want to be doing the work that is most challenging and interesting to me. And I don't want to be doing the work that just proves something to someone else. And I think in a lot of ways this transition more than any other came with that kind of sense of risk and possibility, but a lot of vulnerability too, because I was a CEO. I was, you know, as your colleague Larry experienced somebody who, you know, whose nonfiction books about museum practice were in museums all over the place and um, was really respected in that world. And I think that as I transitioned to writing fiction, I always remember when I first started writing this book, I talked to a colleague from museum land um, and I described what I was doing. I was all excited and he pauses and he says, so are you writing this book ironically? Or, and I was like, no, this is what I'm doing now. And um, I think that the world always wants to put us in boxes about you are an X or you do that. And I feel like, um, yeah, life is too varied and interesting to stick with those boxes, even if it sometimes leads to some confusion, vulnerability, even maybe some shame um, on the journey and transition from one thing to another. I
1: mean, I can't relate to being like a NASA engineer or even, you know, the the headspace that you have with the museum stuff. But I felt like that with the podcast because Mm. I had always worked on the web and then putting yourself out there is such a vulnerable thing. Like yes. it's a completely different venue to use your voice versus you're writing behind a computer and you never see anybody. And I understand like, you know, also the headspace where you want to be creatively challenged. Like you want new things and it keeps your brain busy. So I love that you have all of these different things that you've done with your career. And now we get
0: to talk to you about your fiction book, which is so cool. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, the the experience I've been thinking about the most as I've been writing fiction is when I was in college and I was an engineering student by day, but then a slam poet by night. And of course, slam poetry, you know, It's creative writing, but more what I've been thinking about are all those nights when I got up in front of a crowd of drunk people to perform (laughs) my own poetry and they had scorecards and were encouraged to heckle. And I just feel like that experience of being live with a uh, joyously, raucously judgmental audience really was a great trial by fire to now feel like it is just... uh, I have a deep amount of calm about things like reviews on the internet cuz I'm like oh no no this is nothing like you know that that night in Atlanta or whatever it might be when I was um doing slam poetry I get it. There is nothing that will humble you more than a karaoke
1: crowd, right? Like I, I totally get that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it It is one of those things. And I'm so excited that you're being vulnerable with your work because we get to benefit from it. And I mm-hmm. want to start out with the line from your story that's going to kick us off with a little bit of a synopsis about your book. It says, her mother had never visited Elkhorn Slough And no one had ever been murdered there. But there was a first time for everything. So can you tell me a little bit about your book and the setup for your debut, Mother Daughter Murder Night?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Mother Daughter Murder Night is a big-hearted mystery. It's about... Three amateur sleuths, a feisty grandma, a single mom, and a teenage girl who work together to solve the murder of a naturalist who washes up dead on their doorstep. And it takes place in this national marine preserve called Elkhorn Slough that's just about 30 minutes down the road from where I live. And it's interesting because um, that excerpt you just shared is from the prologue. And um, the prologue was not something I initially wrote. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the book is really centers on the grandma. She's the star, Lana Rubicon. And in chapter one, right away, um, she's living a high flying life as a um, real estate mogul in Los Angeles. And She gets um, diagnosed with cancer and she has to go stay with her estranged daughter and granddaughter in what she sees as a very dumpy cottage in a very sleepy town in this marine preserve. Um, And, you know, then, of course, she ends up seeing something laid outside the window that gets her uh, suspicious. Her granddaughter, Jack, who's a kayak tour guide, stumbles onto a dead body and the story and the mystery takes off from there. But the prologue got added because um, originally chapter one started in Lana's world in Los Angeles. But this book really is set in this eerie, beautiful, um, misty place of Elkhorn Slough. And it's really set in Beth's cottage on the side of the water. And so we added this prologue and, you know, the lines you just... um, shared with her mother had never visited Elkhorn Slough. It's from Beth's perspective. And one of the big things that happened in the editing was shifting this from being only focused on Lana to focusing on Lana Beth, and Jack. And so we mm. added this prologue, both obviously to create that kind of spooky vibe and that premonition, there was a first time for everything, but also to land readers in the core setting of the story, which is this intergenerational household in this small town on the side of this marine preserve.
1: I loved it. And I will say too, for listeners that maybe Don't gravitate towards mystery. I would qualify myself as not really a mystery reader, but I have lots of people in my life that are big mystery readers. This is an intergenerational story. It is a story about mothers and daughters, and that is a a big element of it. So if those are your kinds of stories, this is also a mystery for you and maybe a great introduction into the mystery world because i think it's so effective i want to talk about writing these very relatable characters right one passage reads you only get one mother even if she was a pain in the butt right um and i think that made me laugh like so so hard because it is so relatable right and they are not perfect characters they all have their flaws just like we do Lana, though, is just a real knockout standout character. Did you have anyone that you were visualizing to create this character because she has a fashion sense and she's so corporate and so good at managing a room? I I aspire to be
0: Lana. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because Lana's the only character who's really based on somebody, which is my mom. And, you know, it's funny because I wrote this book by my mom's side and she was very involved with it. And her biggest fear as we were getting closer towards publication was, you know, I hope um, people don't think I'm uh, such a, you know, B word as Lana is, you know, that she's, she's very protective about, you know, and I always say to her, people love Lana. Like, Mm -hmm. and um, I think that Lana is very fierce and very powerful. And that's how I saw my mom growing up, you know, my parents got divorced when I was um, really young and my mom immediately kind of put on a power suit and high heels and was leaving the house every morning at seven and coming home you know, when we were getting ready for bed. And um, unlike Lana, who really relishes that life, I think for my mom, it was much more conflicted. And I have a very, very close relationship with my mom. You know, we are not estranged like the characters in the book. But there's no question that especially because I wrote this book while my own mom was dealing with cancer, mm-hmm. Lana sort of became the superhero version of my mom. It's like my mom is stuck in bed or is subject to the whims of these doctors. Let me write a version of her who bosses those doctors around. You know, my mom is not yet ready to go out into the world. Let me write um, a version of her who gets back in her car and, you know, hits the town. And, um, and so I think that um, Lana became this, um, escapist fantasy for me and my mom as my mom was going through treatment and as she was getting stronger as well. Um there are no other characters who are as rooted in a real person as Lana, um, but there's no question that the real relationships between the mothers and the daughters in this story are rooted in, you know, the real conflicts that I've experienced. You know, I'm in between my mom and then my daughter and um thinking about you know, we all know how our roles shift when we go from just being the daughter to being the sandwich one um, and what that role looks like when you become, you know, the matriarch. And I think that because I was writing this as I was caregiving for my mom, you know, I would be up in Santa Cruz with my daughter and then I would go down for a couple weeks at a time to care for my mom. And so I was really deeply living some of the Harder and also more beautiful parts of those relationships, mm-hmm. and writing this and processing it in fiction, um, and even talking about that with my mom as it went, um, became a comfort and an escape, really, for both of us. Um, I'll also say I, I agree with you, you know, about what this book is. I like to think it's a mystery and a family drama. And for me as a debut novelist, you know, I say, write what you know. And I and my mom have both been reading mysteries all our lives. And I was very comforted by the idea that with a mystery, you have some very basic plot points you know have to be there. There has to be a dead body. You have to find out who did it. And that made me feel like there was scaffolding I could work with. But I certainly feel like the book is just as much a family drama as it is a mystery. And I'd even say in in my feeling, the family drama is the thing where uh where most of my heart is um and of course I enjoyed and really intellectually enjoyed you know making a twisty mystery where you're guessing along the way um but it, I always wanted to come back to those women I could write those women together all day long
1: I love that well Nina tell me a little bit about the seeds of this story and how it started in this hospital room and what transpired between you and your mother that made you want to approach this new project?
0: Yeah. So, you know, my mom and I and my sister as well, we have all just really always been independent, hard-charging businesswomen and in very different ways. My mom was in tech, My sister's in finance. You know, I was in nonprofits and arts. um, But we always had the kind of relationship where we loved each other, but a lot of it was on the phone or on text. You know, we were busy, we were going around doing our thing, very independent. And then in late 2020, um, my mom got diagnosed um, first with brain cancer, and then they found out it was in her lungs as well. And it was just one of those. Moments for me. I think some people have those moments when they have a kid. Sometimes they have it when there's a crisis. But for me, there's just a fork in the road at that moment that changed everything. Um, I was the CEO of a startup that I was really passionate about. And I ended up working with my board to transition out and find a new CEO. I just didn't want to do that anymore. All I wanted to do was care for my mom. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, my husband was super supportive. I spent a lot of time, you know, changing my life to spend time with my mom in LA. And we were incredibly lucky to be together, but it was a really stressful and scary time. And all we talked about was cancer. All we talked about was have you taken your pills? Will you have another sip of that protein shake? No, really, will you have more protein? I mean, I can't tell you the amount of time we spent talking about protein shakes. It was mm-hmm. very depressing. And we needed something else to talk about. And so, you know, my mom and I have both always loved murder mysteries. And we started reading some again together while she was sick. And then one day I just turned to her and I said, you know, what if I tried writing one with somebody like you as the detective? Mm. And for me, it became a productive outlet because I was, you know, struggling um, with the time I had on my own during that caregiving time. But much more so, it was this intimate, connection and escape for the both of us. I mean, we would spend hours in hospital waiting rooms debating what should happen next. You know, She'd call me from the chemo clinic. She'd be like, I found a great way to kill somebody. And she'd get all excited. And then she'd just (laughs) drop her voice. She'd be like, oh my gosh, the nurses are looking at me funny. I got (laughs) to stop talking about this. I mean, it just became a joy. And it wasn't that we didn't talk about cancer anymore, but it wasn't the only thing we were talking about. It was the last thing we were talking about instead of the center of everything. And so this project really, I never thought, Amy, that I was going to try and publish it. It was not even on my mind. I mean, what was on my mind was I needed something to do. Um, I needed to be creatively engaged in the world And my mom and I needed something to talk about um, so that we could stop arguing about protein shakes. And as I wrote, you know, in the beginning, she'd be asleep. She slept late um, for a long time. She's doing better now, by the way. I should say that she's doing much better. We're super excited the book is coming Mm -hmm. out. Um, But, you know, I would just sit on her bed next to her while she was sleeping and I would just try and write a chapter. And then when she woke up, I would just sort of slide the laptop to her and I would go make her food and then... I'd come back and she'd give me notes and we'd talk about things. We got books about how to write mysteries. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing, you know? And um, and we just saw this kind of the way I could imagine another family saying, well, let's plan a trip around the world or something like that. You know, it was it was our escape. And then the more I worked on it and as she got better, the more we felt like it was giving us joy. And I started to feel like, gosh – maybe this is what I always want to do, or maybe this is something emerging that is the next thing for me. And so I think that, you know, my mom often says, this is the only good thing that came out of cancer. Um, but, and it's weird to say that anything good comes out of it. But for me, this has been both just such a source of joy, um, and intimacy with my mom and this incredible creative flourishing for myself that I, I just, didn't anticipate at 40 years old. I absolutely did not.
1: Yeah. I understand like the the diagnosis thing and being trapped in a hospital bed, right? You're (laughs) trying to navigate just daily life and it does become all encompassing to have something like that happen. And I think what maybe listeners could learn from this is that you know, having a project like this really shifted the room, like it shifted the relationship with you and your mother, but it also um, just gave you purpose like in your day. And I think one thing that you captured really well on the page is that when Lana is going through this, our fictional Mm. version of your mother, um, Mm. she is trying to not be invisible, which I Mm. think is one of the uh, biggest, most vulnerable things. You know, when it comes to fashion and how she is trying to control Mm -hmm. a room, it really goes back to like she has this illness, right? But she's also a very powerful, incredible woman. And I think that when we get diagnosed with something, it can often lead to an identity crisis and you Mm -hmm. have to learn to control the room. And I loved that you were weaving those elements in and also making us think a little bit about like even just the day to day of, you know, having a diagnosis like cancer. One of Mm -hmm. the hurdles is how big the pills are, which I could picture this must be something that you guys experience. Like, why are these pills so big? And why do I have to take these big horse pills when I don't feel well? And just those kinds of things that you were dealing with every single day. I just really appreciated that. And I think that, you know, especially the aspect of Lana feeling invisible, how did you want to interpret You know, maybe her having this sleuthing adventure as a way of coping through that struggle.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that um, it's so interesting you tie that to the illness because I absolutely agree with you. And I think that invisibility is something that a lot of older women, I mean, certainly a lot of the women I love most who are my mentors and aunties, you know, talk about this all the time that you reach a certain age and you're not seen, you're not respected, you're discarded. And I think that um, that can be true whether there's something catalytic like a diagnosis or not. There's no question that for Lana that hits in one fell swoop, um, which is maybe different from how some people experience it. But um, I think that also I was trying to solve a kind of technical writing problem, which is if you're going to write an amateur sleuth story, you need a legitimate reason for this person to want to investigate the crime. And actually, you know, Lana has two. She both wants to assert herself and her visibility and power. And also she sort of in this fumbling way in the beginning and it becomes richer over time, wants to help her family. And, um, you know, when her granddaughter is... Um, thrown under suspicion as part of this. And so I think that um, I was looking for credible reasons, but then also was really interested in exploring this visibility question throughout. And I, I think that, you know, one of the dynamics that happens in this book with Lana and all the other major female characters is Lana assessing the extent to which other women are making themselves visible and whether they're doing so in the right way. Mm -hmm. You know, she does that with her daughter. She does that with the female detective, Teresa Ramirez. Um, And I think that Lana has a very particular idea about it, what it means and what is required as a woman to make yourself visible. And, and that's very particular. I think, both to her generation but also to the man's world she was in in commercial real estate in Los Angeles. And I think that a lot of the book is not necessarily about her um, denying invisibility or embracing it, but about um, expanding her definition of how a woman can be powerful and seeing, for example, especially her daughter, who at the beginning, you know, as a nurse and a caregiver – Lana is very dismissive of those, um, you know, endeavors. She is very uh, dismissive of the extent to which Beth, um, her daughter sacrifices for um, her granddaughter. And I think that Lana throughout this book is learning both how to be visible in a different way, but also um, that there can be beauty and power in interdependence as there is in independence and, You know, this is a lesson that I feel like I'm still learning and Mm -hmm. grappling with. And as I mentioned, you know, my mom and I, my whole family, we're a family of strong, independent women. And I think that my mom getting sick thrust us into interdependence in a way that on one hand, was kind of beautiful, but in other ways, was confusing, was irritating, um, and was something we had to grapple with. Um, but there's no question, you're right, that this sense of purpose um, is something that Lana's seeking. It's something I was seeking. You know, when I was writing, one of the things that actually um, encouraged me to do it was Elizabeth Gilbert years ago wrote this book called Big Magic. And there was it's about creativity. Mm-hmm. Yes, and she I love had an yeah, and she had an accompanying podcast called Magic Lessons that I actually encountered mm-hmm. before the book. And um magic lessons, I I highly recommend it. It's just her Coaching regular people on doing more creative stuff in their life, and it 's not people who are famous or who are necessarily going to have big careers it 's somebody who wants to write down her family story it 's somebody who wants to be a stand up comic and do um, some gigs and actually get on stage and She does this kind of tough love coaching um, in it, and anyway, I would listen to these podcast episodes the, the only thing I did when my mom in, was in the worst part of her illness. The only times I would take a break is I would go on these long runs in the Topanga Hills in L.A., and I would listen to these podcasts um, because I felt like I was searching for, you know, you were talking about the pills. Another thing people don't really talk about is if you're in the blessed situation that somebody goes from death watch to now you're in sort of a long-term treatment plan, it's very confusing as um, the people around them to decide, well, wait, now should I be here all the time? What's my role now that I'm not caring for somebody in the worst crisis moment? And I think that I was searching for what my new relationship with my mom was going to be, with my family back home was going to be, with my work was going to be, and listening to Magic Lessons and listening to Elizabeth Gilbert give people this encouragement around, Just do it. Creativity and making things creates purpose that is good, regardless of what the output is or the outcome, um, really spurred me. And I just would so recommend to anybody who's sort of in that mushy place to check out the Magic Lessons podcast, um, and you know, be inspired by um, having Liz Gilbert as your coach in your head, encouraging you in mm-hmm. your creative dreams.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I can only speak to like when I started the podcast, I watched a lot of videos of other people te- teaching me and coaching me, and mm-hmm. one of the guys who was super successful that I listened to played his first episode, which was absolutely horrific, right? And it's Uh. like, it is going to be terrible for a very (laughs) long time, and then you will figure it out. And I think that uh, these kinds of creative challenges, once we get over the hump, or even not being successful at something and realizing, you know what, at least I tried. A lot of people will never even put that kind of effort into something. And I love the idea of challenging ourselves creatively out of something that we are normally in a loop of doing something
0: else. Absolutely. And I mean, for me, writing fiction for the first time, I've been writing all my life, you know, both first poetry and then nonfiction, but it was so different. And especially, I remember the first, I was terrified of writing dialogue and as you know there 's actually a ton of dialogue in the book i I came to love it, but in the beginning, I would always think about when people who draw i 'm not somebody who draws, but you know artists talk about um, sometimes how there might be a part of the body that they don 't draw, like hands and they you know they 're terrified of hands, so they 're always kind of sticking them behind people 's backs or in their pockets or whatever. I felt that way about dialogue at first, and then once I started practicing, I just like wanted to put hands everywhere you know <laughs> I just loved it, and I feel like that opportunity. Um, to take something you start out objectively terrible at and then work on it and see yourself grow and feel that. I mean, uh, that is a huge dopamine rush for me. Yeah, I totally get it. Well, I want to go
1: back a little bit, just backtrack with Lana's viewpoints because, mm-hmm. you know, that isn't the only scenario where – They have two different generational viewpoints. One of them, there are two major topics, I think, within your book that you probably had to do either some research or you wanted to, you know, kind of craft around this. But one of those is just the racism that -hmm. is happening in this area in Lana's viewpoint. She thinks, well, not everything is about racism, but best experience as a mother and someone who is raising a child who has a different heritage is that it really is a huge focus in the town and that she knew that possibly her daughter could be set up for the crime. So why did you want to set that up too within your story um, for an exploration in your fiction? Yeah, I
0: mean, I, I live in a very... um multi-ethnic world. And I wanted that to be reflected in this story. You know, the work I was doing right before I started writing fiction was about um, inviting people from all walks of life to feel a sense of belonging inside of museums and libraries and parks. And certainly a lot of that is about dealing with the institutional racism that exists that might tell somebody that a museum is for somebody who is whiter, wealthier, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, uh, older than they are. And so that's work I've been doing a long time in partnership with communities. And I definitely wanted to bring that in, not as the center of the book, but as a portion of it. And so, you know, Jack is biracial, um, Filipino American. Um, and, um, I think that, to what you're saying, what I've experienced in talking with um, people of different generations, especially around anti-racist work, is that there are real generational differences in how we see things and mm-hmm. in whether we see something um, as, you know, a factor that is attributable to racism or to misogyny or to classism or to whatever um and i think i wanted to you know portray some of those differences and invite readers to maybe think about and ask themselves the questions about well how do i see what's going on here you know there's a historic passage in the book that's real about the history of the, the mystery surrounds this ranch that um, you know there are multiple stakeholders vying for the future of this ranch after the patriarch the rancher dies and in doing my research for the book i found this really extraordinary document about the history of a real ranch that is really where this happened, about a time in the 1850s, when the rancher Joseph Roadhouse, who was a British American pioneer settler, you know, was working on building up this ranch, and a band of Spanish Mexicans um, came and, you know, contested his claim on the land. And, the way it was written, obviously, history is always written from the, you know, perspective of the winners. But from the way it's written, it's sort of like, well, Roadhouse was the, you know, ranch owner and settler. And these Mexicans were, you know, a band of criminals coming to take it from him. But of course, in the history of California, you know, um, California was all part of Spanish Mexico. And by the way, who did Spanish Mexicans steal the land from before them? You know, it was the native Amamutsin and Rumzian people in that area. And so I, I think that I wanted to explore the fact that these questions about um, race and ethnicity and diversity, they're not just political, contemporary issues. These are issues that have reverberated through um, this land and land across this country for, you know, since the beginning, if not before the beginning of this nation. And so I think that um, it's certainly something that I've grappled with as a resident and as somebody who cares about community and culture in my, in my region. And I wanted that to be reflected here. But I also wanted to be real about the fact that, even though, you know, Lana and her daughter Beth are from the same background, you know, they're both um, Jewish women from Los Angeles. um, They have very different perspectives about what's happening. And part of that is um, situational about their relationship to Jack, but part of it's generational. And I think that um, that's real and it doesn't make Beth Wright and Lana wrong or vice versa I think these are conversations we have to be having I don't know about you but I feel like you know it's not uncommon that um somebody in my life who's a different generation either you know a teenager will push me um about you know a A a frame I have, or that I'll be pushing somebody older. Um, I I heard an interview with Tom, uh, with Ann Patchett recently, talking about her new book, Tom Lake. Mm -hmm. And I know there are parts in that book where daughters push against the mother for. Unwoke language and this kind of thing. And I think it's real that we see things based on the frame that we were acculturated into. And fortunately, as humans, we can learn to do differently. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not like we inherently all approach these issues in the same way.
1: Yeah. You know, it is one of those things that I'm really thankful. Like, I feel like my daughter is my pusher a little bit. Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. that I. You know, um, progressive and understand things, and then I will say something, and she will backtrack me a little bit and say, "Like, why do you think that?" And Mm -hmm. I think the one thing that I have learned and that I am learning is that I'm open to those kinds of conversations and Mm -hmm. like walk away and try to make myself a little bit better. Not that I am perfect by any means, but that I take those gentle nudges from my kid. And not see it as a character flaw that I've done something yeah. wrong or that she's wrong or that we just continue to learn from each other. And if we don't do that, that's where progress doesn't happen. And I personally think Gen Z is super cool and that they're teaching me so much. So I'm really glad that I have a generation to actually be that person. Because if I didn't, I would just kind of be stuck where I am. And that those kinds of nudges are what I hope that I give to my parents when I hear yeah. things. So I, I think that's a wonderful thing. I do, too, want to talk about, you know, part of this is about land ownership. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the man who is murdered right in the opening, uh, the Central Coast Land Trust is what he is part of. And that role in general within the community is really met with a lot of resistance. So I wanna hear maybe what you wanted to do tension-wise within your story as we explore who owns the land and who has rights to do what they do with the land.
0: Yeah, you know, because I spent so many years working in nonprofits, I really wanted to, even though I absolutely love nonprofits and I love the people who work in them, I felt like I knew enough from my own experience about the contradictions of that work that I really wanted to play with that. And I really wanted to ask the question about, what does happen when a conservation organization um, thinks that they know best what needs to happen to land, especially land that has been the source of livelihood for so many people and so many generations? Um, You know, what is the influence that wealthy donors have on what happens with nonprofits, what happens with land? How much should donors um, direct what's happening? Um, And so I think that, you know, I wanted to kind of uh, – not so much expose the dark side of nonprofits, but to really play in the muddy gray. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was, it it was also for me kind of cathartic after so many years working in nonprofits to be like, well, let me make one that's a little bit shady, you know, and let me see. (laughs) And, And this is, there's so much in this book that is true to our region and real places. The Central Coast Land Trust is made up. We have a wonderful land trust in Santa Cruz County. We have a wonderful land trust in Big Sur. I do not want to suggest that this is these land trusts, but I did want to play with these questions um, and some of the real issues that come up. And I think that land conservation is so interesting because at least I, as, you know, a white progressive American, like I tend to see public land and land conservation just sort of universally as a good, great, we're saving more land for wilderness, you know, the animals need places to go, um, you know, national parks are good, all that kind of thing. But I also, you know, in doing the research for this book, but also in my past work around inclusion, have really learned about the extent to which parks can be very white spaces and um, the extent to which, you know, sometimes A wealthy person can donate their land basically for the tax write off, and then it's um, locked into this sort of elite enclave of you know conservationists who can pat themselves on the back for what they're doing. But meanwhile, that land is in a region where there is absolutely no access to affordable housing, or where Mm -hmm. you know um, the people who work the land um, have you know no way to really make a, a a livelihood, and so. I wanted to explore some of those ambiguities. And I I think that, you know, um, the Salinas Valley, they call it the salad bowl of California. If you buy bagged lettuce or if you buy organic berries, they come from the place where this book is set. And I think that this land um, is so valuable. It is like gold. I mean, there are venture capitalists buying up farms just to sit on the land, which is a whole other issue. But I wanted to really ask this question of, is conservation always good? Is it always the best choice for the land? And I think that in my heart as a nature girl, my answer probably is still like, mm, maybe yes. <laughs> um, you know, um, my husband works on affordable housing and we become very big believers in this idea that if you do more building in the urban core, you can have more wilderness in the wildlands and you have less sprawl. I mean none of I but I really tried not to bring my personal politics into this book. So that was the other part was like how can I write against My beliefs, and especially Lana, you know, how can I write somebody who thinks the place that I think is the most beautiful place on the planet is like disgusting? Um, And it was fun to do that. And it was a challenge that kept me from writing a book that felt preachy or didactic and kept Mm. it really entertaining. And so, tension is always good in a book, and of course, always good in a mystery. So, that was part of it. But I also just wanted to, you know, again, complicate the question a little bit about um, what do we see as the right use of land who decides what that is Um, and what are the You know, the consequences that might not be as visible when land um, is used for a particular thing. I mean, there are your book club questions right now, right? (laughs) Like, this is a
1: great setup. I do think, like, the moral complexities that is the hardest thing about, you know, I guess social media and like being more aware than we ever were before is that I have so many complexities about everything that I do now that I always feel a little bit guilty. Like, everything that we're striving to do is also something that is not a perfect system and that, you know, at least we're trying, right? But it is a really great conversation to, you know, think about like, how do we perceive these kinds of areas and adding in some moral complexities allows us to explore those kinds of things in book club, but also created great tension for your mystery too. Absolutely. Well, I do want to talk about as we're closing out how, you know, this maybe made you feel like you knew your home better because mm. you are exploring this land in a different way than you ever mm-hmm. have before. And what you had to research and to gather, how does this make it feel closer to you than it did prior to the novel?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, well, first of all, I was very intentional in setting the book. Thirty minutes south of where I live. Mm -hmm. I, I think that while I know Santa Cruz and I know the Santa Cruz mountains incredibly well, I wanted to remove myself a little bit from the people and places I know so well, both so that I maybe wouldn't get into trouble, but also just so I could look at a place with fresh eyes and really have those sensory experiences that lead you to the kind of observations that you can only or that I maybe yet am only able to write in when I really experience them for the first time. And Elkhorn Slough was a place, and paddleboarding um, on the water was an activity and a place that just became a great source of, um, calm and connection for me during a hard time. And so it became the right place. So I'll say two beautiful things about the research. Um, one is that it was another way for me to get closer to my mom and actually my daughter. So my daughter, you know, she's 10 now, but when I was writing, she was seven or eight and we would often go out to Elkhorn Slough and she would just perch on the front of my paddleboard and we'd just be paddleboarding around and, you know, checking out the otters and the pelicans. And then you'd, hear her little voice from the front going, Mom, you should kill somebody over there, you know, and she'd be pointing to get some falling down shack, or, oh, look at those train tracks, that would be a good place to, you know, leave a weapon, you know, and it was just like, creepy and sweet in the same, uh, you know, which I feel like is a lot about having a little kid, but that was beautiful. And then my mom, while she rarely came up, you know, she did a ton of the book research. So she was, you know, getting books about the flora and fauna of Elkhorn Slough, you know, so she was also discovering things about the place, which was another beautiful connection. And then the other thing I'll say is that, you know, Monterey Bay is not big. And because of my past um, running the museum in town, I know a lot of folks and I was just so amazed at how many of my friends were able to help and were so generous about it. So, you know, there is a kayak store that is key to this story. It's called the Kayak Shack in the book. And I have a friend who I play volleyball with um, who owns this company called the Kayak Connection. And um, and so she and her daughter just like gave me so much information about how a kayak shop works. You know, I was having dinner one night with a friend who works at the university. And I was talking about the book and what I was working on and this ranch that's on the north side of the slough. And he just says to me, oh, you know, I know the guy who owns that ranch. I'm like, what are you talking about? I made up this ranch. He's like, no, 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 there's a real ranch there. Um, do you want to meet him? And he just like, you know, called the guy right away. And, you know, two weeks later, I'm out on horseback with this rancher who is nothing like the rancher in the book. Um, The rancher in the book, Hal Rhodes, is like this very stolid, you know, conservative, upright man. And the rancher who's actually out there is like, he's the most sweet, kind, intellectual, like, Hippie, you've ever met, like just you know, long ponytail. I just, I know that the rancher in the book, Hal Rhodes, would not necessarily be a fan of this real guy, but this guy, you know, has been so generous with me, both with historical documents, but also, you know, taking me out on the ranch, um, hiking and on horseback and showing me every plant and every bird. Um, and so I just feel like there's been a lot of ways that my community has been part of making this book. And I think that that's a beauty of a small town is that people are excited for you, but also people are ready to help. And that just was an unanticipated joy that it would bring me closer to community, even as I was doing something that felt very weird and very private and personal.
1: I love that. I love how you found your people like through this adventure. That is so cool. I know that listeners are going to be mad at me if I miss this opportunity. We have to know what are you and your mother reading as far as mysteries
0: go? Oh, you know, it's so funny. So I've been really reading a lot more widely than I used to. And I've been really getting into um, Southern noir. So Mm -hmm. I am in love with S.A. Cosby, who obviously, you know, is a huge, um, huge author. Um, But um, the person I'd really... Fallen in love with also is Eli Craner. His debut novel was called Don't Know Tough. It's about um, football in Arkansas. It is a grisly Southern noir um, with mm-hmm. just such beautiful voice and um, and it just won the Edgar Award for best debut novel. And Eli is just a wonderful person. And um, love that book. So I've been actually kind of going grittier. My mom. Finally, I have been recommending Louise Penny to her forever. If there is a uh, a tonal hero I have that I was trying to achieve with Mother Daughter Murder Night, it is the warmth and the kindness that is in her Inspector Gamache books, but my mom always thought they were boring. And <laughs> I'd be like, I'm obsessed with these books. I like <laughs> reread them. I When I was working on my debut novel, I would take Louise Penny books and I would like diagram, like, how did she do this? You know, figuring out how certain scenes work, but I couldn't get my mom to read the books. And so I just, just last week, my mom texted me. She's like, I'm finally listening to, you know, the first um, book by her and it's really good. And I'm just like, thank God, I've been telling you forever about these books. So um, I just love that
1: series. Well, I do love uh, a gritty story. So I'm really glad that you brought S.A. Cosby. I will say I think David Joy might be your author that Mm. you need to try if you haven't tried him Mm. yet. But the Louise Penny, uh, I have not dug into, but is definitely on my bucket list. And everyone that loves her loves her You know, to pieces, my best friend is obsessed with Louise Penny. She's read she read all of the books over the pandemic, but she also Mm -hmm. is an Agatha Christie fan and Mm. a Murder She Wrote fan. So we tried Murder Mm -hmm. She Wrote. It's a little sluggish for me, but she loves it and she watches it every weekend. And I just think that's so cool. She knows how the oh, thematic fun. music changes and what happens and I'm like
0: <laughs> I just think this that's is so hilarious. great and
1: cozy I love yeah. it
0: yeah it's well, funny I actually never people have been comparing my book to both Murder She Wrote and Gilmore Girls yes. and I had never seen either of them until and only Murders in the Building which I still haven't seen at all so <sighs> I feel like I'm, I'm not a big tv I'm way behind on tv my mom and I definitely like the classic for us is Columbo I mean we love Lupin Um, And we love Miss Fisher, too, um, which is an Australian uh, mystery series that's very light and fun featuring this flapper in the 20s who becomes um, this lady sleuth. But... But, yeah, I, I feel like I'm way behind on the TV side of the of the mystery world.
1: Oh, I well, I am not a big TV watcher either. But I do know that Louise Penny, her books did come to Amazon Prime, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. So that is also on your bucket list. But I don't think it got renewed. I think that was the problem no. with it. You only get one yeah. season. So enjoy yeah. it. Savor it. I guess it's, it's But a it, it's watch. actually
0: really good. Not everybody loves it. I watched it. I'm obsessed with Louise Penny. Okay. So, of course, I watched it. Um, it really gets more deeply into some of the indigenous issues, um, which – And First Nations is super interesting in terms of the Canadian legacy there. So I really enjoyed the show for that. But those books, you know, Amy, what I would say to you is when you are seeking comfort, which is so weird that I'm saying this about murder books, but like when you are just looking for a warm hug in the form of a book and you want and this is something somebody um, told me early on is that. Mysteries are like the modern morality play. You know, injustice is done, a rift is um, torn, and then the detective uses logic and care to knit it back together. And of course, not all mysteries work that way. Many are much grittier. Many, you know, have uh, unpleasant endings. But. Louise Penny, you know, those stories always with heart bring you a sense of calm, even in their complexity. And I just I just love them.
1: Well, there's our soundbite for the opening <laughs> of the show. I mean, you, you hooked us in. I mean, who doesn't want that in their life? And I love hearing how you and your mother worked on this project together. As we close out, I just want to say, you know, creativity takes courage. I'm so proud of you for trying something new. I mean, you could have just... Rode out on your laurels. You had so many things that you have, you know, been super successful at and have done so well to put yourself back in the fire again. That's intense. And I know, especially. In my midlife years, that this is like a really amazing thing that you are trying something different, and I would just like to ask you what you feel most proud of, whether that is with this project mm-hmm. or just in general right now.
0: Well, thank you, Jan. I I love that quote by Henry Matisse: um, "Creativity takes courage." Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, in my past life at the museum, um, the big project I led that I'm very proud of was to build a town plaza and, you know, I bought one of those little plaques for donors and mine just says that quote on it. So, um, that's a quote I really live by. Mm. Um, you know, I think the thing I'm most proud of, this is sort of weird is over the last couple of years, really decoupling from having pride be rooted in those big accomplishments like the town plaza or being named chamber of commerce woman of the year or stuff like that. Like I, I feel like I, I, had gotten to a place with an unhealthy relationship to some of those things. And I think that um, when my mom got sick and when I quit my CEO job and um, made this transition, there was so much more courage in that letting go of that sense of self then there was like the writing was easy. The writing, I mean, not, not that it was easy to write a book, but the writing was a pleasure. You know, those challenges felt fun and they were on my own terms and they weren't being judged or uh, requested by anybody else. I think the challenge and the thing I'm proud of over the last couple of years is, um, being, you know, willing to let go of some of those titles that came off of my name, you know, and being willing when somebody says to me, wait, you're writing a mystery to to just be like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And I'm happy and I'm making dinner and I'm, you know, here for my family. And I, I admit that, Amy, you know, I used to be the kind of person who like felt a mixture of confusion and like faint embarrassment when a woman or any person would say that they were switching to focus on their family like i was just like oh that's nice for you i guess but i don't even really know what that's about. like and that makes me sound like i must be a terrible family person i don't think i am but i think that for the first time i'm embracing that you can just be happy that you are being there for you know really being present for people in your life and I used to tell myself that, you know, my self-worth only was connected to external achievements and I don't feel that way anymore. And it took a lot of courage and a lot of work, um, over the last couple of years to get there.
1: I'm so proud of you. And I totally get that this was like a new identity for you. And I'm, I think that, you know, this, this is like where we get to, you know, I feel like this is where we get to choose what we want to do. We're in a different Mm. place in our lives where, you know, this is almost like a brand new road and that yeah. you get to try something completely different. And also just the legacy that you're going to get to give your daughter that someday, you know, when she might be in her midlife years, that if she wants to pick up a murder mystery thing or whatever that thing is, that she can do that because her mom was so inspiring and that, you know, your your mom is so inspiring too. And to get to hear this story is incredible. And I feel privileged to get to share space with you today. Mm -hmm. I do want to tell listeners that this is not all because I'm making Nina stick around for our Patreon because we get to talk about who the killer was and how she got to that conclusion. And if you have enjoyed the show, it is independent, so we completely rely on listeners for funding. So if you feel called, you can join patreon.com backslash mom advice, or check our show notes to be part of our bonus episode where we are going to talk through this ending. And just to remind you, you need to get Mother Daughter Murder Night. Nino, when does this hit store shelves?
0: It's coming out on Tuesday, September 5th, and I'll be doing a lot of different tour events. I would love to meet you um along the road with this book. Um, my mom's gonna be joining me for some of those events as well. And I just hope that the women in this story um fill you with the same kind of joy and energy that we got as we were creating this book. Thank you, Nina.